Okay, so um, on behalf of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, um, I'd like to welcome you to the fourth series, the fourth lecture in our series. It's an interdisciplinary series. Um, and I'd like to say thank you also to our co-sponsors. We have a lot of them. Um, and you'll see that they also represent um, a range of disciplines. So the Department of Government, History, Religious Studies, Slavic and Eurasian Studies, Radio, Television and Film, the Center for European, uh, European Studies, the Program in Comparative Literature, and the Dialogue Institute of the Southwest. And uh, before I introduce today's speaker, but just to know that you're in the right place, it's Sam White, Climate, the Little Age, and Ottoman History. Um, before I introduce him, I'd like to tell you um, just a bit about our last upcoming events, um, which are in two weeks, and that will end the series for this year. Um, there are two events happening back-to-back. -back. The first is on Monday, March 3rd, um, and it is a panel um, discussion called Approaches to Religious Freedom and Secularism, and we'll be hosting one sociologist from France, um, Sonia Diane Herzbrun, and uh, two international law professors, um, Hilal Elvar um, of the University of California at Santa Barbara, and her husband Richard Falk, who's a well-known human rights activist, um, retired from Princeton and also currently a researcher at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And that event is open to the public. It will be from 3.30 to 4.30 on Monday, March 3rd. Um, in the law school in the Eidman courtroom. And you can find information about it on the events calendar of the Middle Eastern Studies website. Um, the following day on March 4th, which is a Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m., uh, Hilal Alvar will be speaking more specifically about human rights issues related to the headscarf controversy um, as they've played out in Turkey Europe and the United States, and the title of her talk is Headscarf Controversies Go, Controversies Go Global. Her talk is also open to the public, and it will be in the Student Center, the SAC, in the Legislative Assembly Room um, at 2 p.m. Okay. And again, all that information can be found on our website. Um, today, we'd like to welcome Dr. Sam White here from Ohio State University. Um, I first heard about his work at the Middle Eastern Studies Association meeting where he won lots of nice awards last year and got interested in it. Um, he's coming to us from Ohio State. Um, before that, he worked at Oberlin College for five years. Um, he's taught in many different areas of environmental history, um, including both global and American uh, environmental history survey courses as well as he's taught courses on big history, more topical courses on food, animals, and climate. Um, and his research, as far as I understand, it's not my own field, but uh, focuses on past climate changes and extreme weather and how that's affected uh, human history. Um, and it's interesting he combines both um, scientific data and historical, setters, uh, historical sources to better reconstruct um, what's happened. And um, let's see, his first book, which is sort of the basis for part of this talk at least, today is called The Climate of Rebellion in Early Modern uh, Ottoman Empire and um, explores uh, the effects of severe cold and drought in the Middle East during what was known as the Little Ice Age. Um, and I'd actually rather have him tell you about what he's working on now 
um, because I'll botch it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I won't be able to tell it as well as you do. So, um, so let's give him a nice warm welcome. Well, uh, welcome to my talk, and thank you all very much for coming out. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay, excellent. Um, so as so often happens, uh, when I talk about global warming, uh, it's usually some cold day in winter. And now I'm here to talk about the Little Ice Age, uh, and I, of course, am competing with beautiful sunny weather outside. Uh, so thank you all very much for coming in from the beautiful weather to spend time in this windowless basement with me. Uh, I will do my best to make it worth your while. So today I will talk uh, about my book, but I also want to talk more broadly about the significance of climate change for history, and also climate in history, and perhaps its significance for today, for a world facing global warming. And I will spend a little bit of time talking more about where I see opportunities for Ottomanists in particular. Before I get into that, though, I want to talk a little bit about something else. I want to talk a little bit about squiggly lines. And the reason I'll talk about squiggly lines is that uh, while I say that I do environmental history or historical climatology, if you ask my wife, uh, the reason I get invited to talks like these is because I work with two different kinds of squiggly lines. So the first kind of squiggly line uh, looks something like this. Uh, What this is is a precipitation uh, index for uh, spring-summer precipitation in the eastern Mediterranean uh, over the last few centuries, uh, reconstructed from tree rings. Basically, if you drill a hole in old trees and old timbers, the width of those tree rings uh, will tell you roughly uh, how much it was raining in the spring and summer, which determines uh, how much trees will grow in that part of the world. Uh, So do pay some attention to those dates there, uh, which will come up again later. Now, the second kind of squiggly line that I work with Uh, which will be familiar to some others of you, uh, looks something like this. Uh, I'll give you a moment to read it. Uh, Just a minute. (laughs) Uh, So this kind of squiggling line is what you get when you look in the Ottoman archives. And in particular, uh, this is a document from about 1595, uh, which is complaining about the lack of delivery, uh, mostly of lard, uh, coming from parts of the empire to Istanbul, where it's so desperately needed. Uh, And what I'm going to talk about today is why these two kinds of squiggly lines fit together and what they can tell us about Ottoman history and perhaps world history more broadly. Before I get into that, though, I'm going to have to give a little bit of background about the period of climate I'm talking about. And that period is the so-called Little Ice Age. Now, the Little Ice Age traditionally was associated with images like these. This is uh, Peter Bruegel, the elders, painting Hunters in the Snow. Uh, It was seen as a period of general long-term cooling, and it was first identified Uh, exclusively in Western Europe. But there's been a lot of new and a lot of interesting work that's come out on the Little Ice Age, and in fact on climate history more generally. Because as we get interested in current climate change, we also need to help reconstruct the climates of the past and understand their role. So what this means is there's been some new and sophisticated research. Some of this work has involved so-called climate proxies, like the tree rings that I talked about earlier climatologists go and they try to find physical remnants, so-called proxies of past weather. Uh, These could be tree rings, or they can be even more interesting sources, like sediments at the bottom of lakes, uh, stalagmites and stalactites, ice cores, uh, corals, anything that would allow us to have some way of reconstructing different variables about past weather and climate. On top of that, we also have a variety of work called historical climatology. And this is the effort of historians and geographers to go through the written record, 
to try to reconstruct climate and its impact as well. To go through anything, whether it's tax records or harvest dates or when people went out and picked the grapes uh, for the you know, annual uh, you know, grape collection, uh, or sometimes even weather journals when people are actually telling us what was going on in the past. And if you start to put that together, and especially if you compare it to the physical uh, record, this proxy record, you can start to get a much more detailed, much more complete and accurate sense of what the climate was like in the past. So what we have now is not just a sense of general cooling in the Little Ice Age, but a sense of what particular climate events, particular climate extremes there were. And what we learn from that uh, is a few things. One is that while the Little Ice Age was just an average cooling of maybe one degree centigrade uh, tops in the northern hemisphere, and bear in mind we're talking about two to four degrees warming in the next century, okay? One degree centigrade, uh, that small average change could mean big changes in extremes, as we'll talk about soon. Second, we also learn is that some of these big events, climate events, line up remarkably well with historical events, uh, sometimes in a really uncanny way, and sometimes it's a lot more than just coincidence. And what we find are that descriptions that people gave of the weather and its impacts, which in some cases had been dismissed as exaggerations before uh, or as perhaps rhetorical flourishes, were a lot more than that. They were descriptions of real climate extremes that were going on, uh, and the impacts they described were very palpable and very significant. Now, along with that, we also understand more about the way the Little Ice Age fits into history. We know, first of all, that it was not just a European event. It was a global event. Uh, And we know that this global cooling, uh, in some cases, precipitated real ecological crisis. Uh, This was a world, if you think back to the broader historical perspective, uh, that had recovered its population from losses in the Black Death, was facing more population pressure, in some cases inflation. Uh, And so the agricultural limits that came with this cooling, and in some cases changes in precipitation, uh, came at a bad time. Uh, It came at a time when it could precipitate uh, economic crisis, which could sometimes boil over into political crisis uh, and war and civil war on a large scale. And this has been discussed uh, most notably by my colleague at OSU, Jeffrey Parker, who's written a very big depressing book, as he puts it, uh, recently called Global Crisis, looking at this series of disasters, um, human and natural, that occurred over the 17th century. But here I'm going to turn in particular to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, And what I'm going to argue is that these climate fluctuations of the Little Ice Age help solve an old puzzle, uh, the so-called Ottoman decline. Uh, This is basically this big question of what happened in the Ottoman Empire uh, between its traditional glory days, the classical age uh, when it was a a world empire of major significance in the 16th century, uh, and that time in the 19th century when it got labeled the sick man of Europe. And I think we can safely say now that traditional explanations of decadent sultans or meddling eunuchs or Islamic obscurantism uh, were wrong. Uh, But we also have to give a serious look, too, at more recent revisionist accounts of this period, which tend to emphasize only reform or transformation. But I'll argue is that there was a real crisis in the Ottoman Empire uh, and a very protracted recovery. And to understand that, we have to get back to the time of that crisis, which I'll argue was really Uh, in the 1590s uh, with a number of severe natural disasters uh, as well as the outbreak of a big rural rebellion, the so-called Jalali Rebellion. And that we can only understand how this happened and why it set off such a significant long-term change uh, of agriculture, population, of society in the Ottoman Empire by looking at it uh, through the lens of climatic impacts and, as it were, the human ecology of the empire. Now, 
this shouldn't be entirely surprising because this is part of the general crisis of the 17th century. But by looking in detail at one example, uh, we can understand more particular conditions, particular outcomes. Uh, and we can start to use those to help better understand the role of climate in the historical record. And perhaps using that information, uh, we can also say something more about the significance of climate in the past uh, for climate change in the present. Now, to get there, we'll have to turn a bit to the background of the crisis. Uh, as many of you will be aware, the Ottoman Empire emerged uh, in what would now be Western Turkey uh, around 1300 uh, and enjoyed a couple centuries of fairly rapid growth uh, and conquest. And that expansion, though, and I think this is what is partly overlooked in sort of traditional tales of the Ottoman Empire, took place in a very favorable ecological context, as it were. It took place at a time of relatively low population density uh, in the wake of population losses from the Black Death uh, from the, roughly the mid-14th century to the mid-15th century. So expansion at that time meant a windfall of new lands and also new natural resources. And what we also know from climate reconstructions is that from the late 15th century through to about the early to mid-16th century was a time of relatively stable, relatively mild climate in the bigger context of the Little Ice Age. Now, the Ottoman Empire also made the most of those ecological advantages. It instituted a number of settlement policies, for instance, to help uh, contain the migration of semi-nomadic pastoral tribes, uh, to secure key locations uh, that would help uh, make settlements safer, uh, to uh, clear, for instance, rebellious villages from mountains and forests, uh, and to engage in a variety of policies, including uh, tax incentives, essentially, uh, to help extend cultivation, to encourage more agriculturalists who would be a, a larger base for Uh, extracting, mobilizing natural resources, and paying taxes to the imperial center. And along with that, as I've uh, discussed in more detail in my book, the Ottoman Empire also created a number of fairly sophisticated and large-scale provisioning systems. That is to say, systems to take advantage of the wide range of the empire, its geographical diversity, in order to move key resources uh, from areas of surplus to areas of deficit. And I've given three examples here. Uh, On your top left, you'll see, in very schematic terms, uh, the movement of timber uh, as the empire extracted timber uh, to uh, create, for instance, uh, urban buildings uh, as well as its shipyards uh, for the huge Ottoman naval program. Uh, Famously, the Ottoman Empire suffered a huge naval defeat at Lepanto in 1571, which was at the time uh, seen by the Christian powers as being sort of the the, the limits of the empire. It's, it's, It's death knell. It rebuilt the whole fleet in about a year after that. Um, enormous undertaking. I mean, involved basically clearing small forests uh, for each ship. Uh, on your top right, uh, you see approximately the movement of grain throughout the empire, uh, largely coming from areas of surplus, including Egypt in this case, uh, mainly to feed its uh, large cities, especially Istanbul, which by the late 16th century was becoming a city of perhaps half a million people or more, by far the largest in Europe. Uh, And then finally, what you see at the bottom is another really important but sometimes overlooked provisioning system, and that was the system of getting around sheep uh, and animal products, sheep being especially important as a source of protein uh, for the cities and for the army. Of course, this being an empire that uh, didn't use cattle a lot for beef and didn't raise pigs, being a Muslim empire, uh, an important resource that you could also move over land. Sheep kind of deliver themselves on the hoof. Uh, So... uh, When you take all this together, it allowed the empire to be more resilient, uh, in some cases, to climatic shocks and to support the growth of larger cities, and especially a larger military, uh, clearly the largest in the Western world. 
So another way of thinking about the Ottoman predicament uh, in the Little Ice Age is that in some respects it was a victim of its own success. Uh, Throughout uh, much of the world at this time, this was a period of rising inflation, uh, sometimes linked to the import of silver from the New World, also uh, from the uh, unfortunate practice of debasing the coinage, which could create a lot of instability in prices. But even more than that, uh, the Ottoman Empire had particular problems uh, related to the growth of population. Um, Thanks to its expanding size, thanks to its expanding settlement practices, uh, the population of the empire had something like doubled uh, from the late 1400s to the late 1500s at about its peak, perhaps as much as 35 million people. And what it started to face, uh, we might call diminishing marginal returns to an agriculture. Basically, you were getting more food altogether, but less food per person. And a lot of this owed to the ecological limits of the land, uh, as well as fairly uh, simple farming technologies and what you might call a lack of rural capital, um, lack of capital and stability, for instance, to create uh, larger irrigation networks, except sometimes around big cities. So we start to see in the records signs of pressure on natural resources. Farmers were moving into temporary fields in some cases. Uh, Other cases, they would switch from growing wheat to growing barley, which is significant because barley is a hardier crop. It can withstand uh, more difficult soils, more salty soils, more drought, but it produces less altogether. Um, In other cases, we see, for instance, uh, illegal logging or making charcoal or hunting in what were protected state forests to supply the Ottoman navy. And these problems are particularly acute uh, in a series of natural disasters that began to occur in the late 1500s. First of all, there was a recurring series of significant droughts, uh, especially in the sort of Mediterranean lands of the empire. Uh, And sometimes there were big invasions of agricultural pests like mice or locusts, and these would sometimes be followed by significant famines. And while the Ottoman Empire had uh, elaborate systems to try to reduce the impact of famines, they weren't always entirely successful. We also see more problems uh, related to uh, rural migration or rural to urban migration in many cases, which often helped spread epidemic diseases, including uh, plague, uh, which never really fully disappeared from the empire. But above all, uh, what we start to see are problems in these big provisioning systems I just described. As the empire gets to be more full, as it were, and the cities get to be larger and the wars get to be larger, the empire is having more and more difficulty mobilizing all the resources it needs. It needs every part of the empire to be producing uh, at maximum. And when there are natural disasters that keep that from happening, uh, they start to create chronic shortages. And as a result, the imperial center uh, is taking more and more desperate measures in some cases to make sure that provisions arrive where they're needed. Uh, Bigger requisitions, uh, more extraordinary taxes, forced purchases, uh, and in many cases, um, unrealistic fixed prices for goods. And these measures get particularly extreme and the problems get particularly bad uh, during major military campaigns when they need to mobilize the most resources, oftentimes to distant fronts, either with uh, Persia uh, or in wars with the Habsburgs. Now, these problems were particularly acute in one part of the empire. Uh, And that part of the empire was the sort of semi-arid steppe that stretches from central Anatolia through northern Syria to northern Iraq. This was an area that we can tell from land records, from tax records, uh, had enjoyed, or you might say suffered, particularly rapid population growth over the late 1500s. It was also an area with relatively poor agricultural prospects. Uh, Agriculture there was not particularly diversified, and it was hard to intensify, uh, given that rain pretty much comes uh, just during one season of the year. So farmers were overwhelmingly reliant just on winter wheat or barley. And that meant they were especially vulnerable to famine, 
when those rains, those uh, spring rains, failed. Uh, the crops depended almost overwhelmingly on that one feature of its weather. And it was also a region that would be hard to relieve um, because it was inland. You couldn't move goods by ocean to get there. And so we also see in this region over the late 1500s are increasing problems of uh, sort of banditry and general unrest um, over the late 1500s. So this situation brings us back to our first squiggling line, um, the tree-reconstructed uh, drought. Uh, the turning point for the empire, as I argue, really comes during the 1590s, during that first little dip there, uh, which may not seem like much, uh, but when actually you look over the broad course of Ottoman climate reconstructions, it represents the longest drought in the Ottoman Empire in the last 600 years. Um, parts of the empire had actually lasted into 1596. Uh, and why is this so significant? Essentially because peasants had learned to adapt to maybe a year or two of, of drought, to those other little jagged ups and downs that you see on that reconstruction. But from a peasant's point of view, every year of drought, uh, every successive year of harvest failure, means making one more sacrifice, one more compromise to try to get through to the next year. Um, First year, you might you know, fall back on reserve grain supplies. The second year, you might eat your seed corn. Uh, third year, you might eat uh, your livestock. Uh, but beyond that, you've pretty much exhausted your alternatives. And the only uh, options left are flight, uh, or in some cases, banditry. And we see this in the historical record. Um, at first, uh, for the first couple of years, the drought you know, shows up here and there as a problem in different provinces. But by the end, uh, by 1595, it's an overwhelming concern. Uh, it has led to uh, massive famine. Um, and there are even, you know, prayers and processions in Istanbul uh, led by leading men of state uh, to pray for rain to come back to the empire. To make this even worse, though, uh, this drought uh, came at a time of warfare. In 1593, the Ottomans launched a war against the Habsburg Empire, uh, known rather uncreatively as the Long War, because uh, it would drag out for another 14 years. Uh, this war didn't go like other Ottoman wars. It, there was not a series of rapid victories. Uh, there was not any you know, quick, decisive battle. Uh, instead, it kind of ground down into a long uh, stalemate, uh, a long series of raids and sieges uh, along the Habsburg frontier uh, on the Danube River. Uh, and this drained a huge amount of supplies uh, from the empire itself to try to support the army on that frontier. In the meantime, the soldiers there were suffering from terrible Little Ice Age-type weather. Uh, the Danube froze over in successive winters, uh, so hard that horses could cross over it. Uh, there were spring floods that would bring fevers and possibly malaria to the troops. Uh, it was essentially uh, a disaster. Uh, and when it finally did end, it would basically just return things to the status quo ante. So during this long stalemate, during these huge demands on the provinces, the provisioning systems really start to break down. Uh, requisitions get ever more uh, intense back in the home front, and they meet ever more resistance from the peasantry. Um, but in this context, we might understand why a rebellion might occur. But what's interesting is that if we look closely enough, we can actually see what the spark was. And it came from an unusual place. Uh, and that brings me back to my second set of squiggly lines. This document, which I mentioned before, was about the supply of lard, of, of basically of fats to the empire, mentions a particular phenomenon. It's the first time I came across it, sort of my uh, you know, light bulb moment um, in this research. Uh, and that problem was a epizootic, a epidemic disease among the empire's livestock. Uh, the sheep and cattle in the empire were dying in large numbers. Uh, according to this document, I believe the, the line it says is that people who had flocks of 200 had only 20 or 30 left. Uh, so in other words, uh, 
the you know, death, death rate among some livestock may have been as high as you know, 9 in 10. And in fact, as I kept doing the research, I came across a number of corroborating uh, lines of evidence for this, including an eyewitness description of how this epizootic broke out in eastern Anatolia uh, sometime around 1593 and then spread through uh, what would now be Turkey up through the Balkans. In fact, it even reached into Europe. I was able to find uh, Hungarian sources um, that described it as this vast cattle plague. Uh, So why was this so significant? Well, if you recall earlier, it was sheep that were a key protein supply for the army. Um, And they were also the main uh, item of provisioning that moved over land. Um, So even as uh, the empire, excuse me, the the military effort was getting larger and larger on the Habsburg front um, and was sort of draining its traditional sources of uh, grain, um, it had to keep trying to demand sheep, um, often from the poorer inland regions, the semi-arid regions that I spoke of earlier, that were least able uh, to meet those demands, above all in a time of famine, and above all uh, in, during this vast epizootic. Uh, <clears throat> and then, after learning about this sort of circ- general circumstance, I found what I think is sort of the smoking gun in understanding uh, when and where the rebellion actually broke out. And this was an order that I really couldn't believe, but I came across it. It was an order from some, for some 200,000 sheep uh, in 1595, in the midst of this epizootic, uh, in the midst of this famine and drought, uh, from the poor, dry province of Karaman, which is in south-central Anatolia. Uh, and this was unbelievable, because it was far larger than any other order for sheep that I'd ever seen in this part of the world. Um, and coming at such a desperate moment, um, it was really uh, quite remarkable. And... If you look closely in the chronicles of the time, there was actually a description of how this uh, sheep requisitioning started to occur, how it sort of broke down into disorder and violence, um, and then it sparked uh, our first a small rebellion uh, in a, a little province of uh, Turgut, um, which then sort of uh, you know, caught fire throughout the rest of the province, leading to sort of the swell of uh, chaos and banditry. <clears throat> and in particular... Um, and here's the example of the sheep here. Um, <laughs> uh, this this uh, um, problem of uh, banditry uh, centered around uh, the uh, town of Larende, uh, which is actually today's town of Karaman, um, where, as we know, just a couple years later, um, a mercenary captain by the name of Karyazaja, which means roughly the, the black scribe, uh, would come and turn this sort of inchoate uprising uh, into a real bandit army and to the core of what would become the Jelali armies, uh, which would then really defy imperial power for the next decade and just absolutely devastate uh, the eastern and central Anatolian countryside. Uh, in the meantime, the you know, Ottomans were still uh, caught up in their war with the Habsburgs, uh, and the empire as a whole uh, was suffering severe problems uh, from ongoing famine uh, and ongoing uh, disasters of Little Ice Age weather. The drought lifted after 1596, Uh, But then there were successive, extremely cold, snowy winters, uh, followed by another major drought, um, even more severe than the first, uh, which took place between 1607 and 1609. And in this sort of period of uh, anarchy and suffering, uh, there was a movement uh, which the Ottoman historian Mustafa Akhtar called the Great Flight. Uh, Basically, uh, peasants started to leave their villages in droves, probably by the hundreds of thousands or even millions, uh, often to meet famine or die of disease on the roads or in the cities once they arrived. And we have extensive eyewitness accounts uh, of the devastation that occurred in the Ottoman countryside. So this really became a sort of tipping point for the empire. And it would be followed by what were really decades more of instability, uh, both political, uh, economic, and social. 
Um, I brought up one example here, which I think also gives a sense of how uh, severe uh, Little Ice Age extremes could be. Uh, and this is what happened to Osman II after he took uh, an expedition to uh, Hotin, which uh, was then part of uh, uh, Poland, uh, in 1621. Uh, this was sort of a deliberate attempt, I think, in some ways to, um, for the Sultan to try to get out of an empire that was still suffering so many uh, internal uh, problems um, and try to make a name for himself as sort of a warrior Sultan. Um, but it went disastrously wrong from the first. And the main reason for this, uh, which had been overlooked by many past historians, uh, was what the weather had been like both the year before uh, and the year during the campaign. In March of 1621, it had gotten so cold in Istanbul that the Istanbul Bosphorus had actually frozen over, uh, and supposedly men were able to walk across the strait from Europe to Asia. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Istanbul, this is something that is absolutely inconceivable today. I didn't believe it myself, but I found four different eyewitness accounts uh, that all described the event. Uh, it's sort of like if you were standing in Manhattan, say, and you watched the lower Hudson River freeze over and New Jersey commuters started to walk to work in downtown. Uh, it, it's that unbelievable. Um, but it really seems to have happened. Uh, so that freezing weather had killed off the harvest. And just by bad luck, um, the Nile flood had been poor too. And so there were no provisions to give to the army. Uh, and so as the army goes out on campaign, um, it's the soldiers are underpaid, uh, they're undersupplied, and then they encounter horrible freezing weather um, as they make their campaign into Hotin. Uh, all of their uh, horses start to die in heavy snows, and then uh, fevers and dysentery break out among the soldiers. It was so bad, actually, that 30 years later, uh, when the English uh, scientist Robert Boyle wrote a dissertation on cold, on its physiological uh, effects, uh, he used the example of the Hotin campaign to describe how terrible cold could be uh, for humans and animals, which I thought was particularly interesting. Um, so it was probably not too much of a surprise that the soldiers revolted uh, and deposed uh, Osman II, um, who was then murdered um, just a year later. So I won't have time to go into all of these examples, but really what we see over the 17th century and what really should be explored in more depth um, is a sort of series of recurring human and natural disasters that often go together. And the underlying pattern in these um, is a continued vulnerability uh, to Little Ice Age climate events, uh, as well as continued problems with military provisioning. Uh, so when you have uh, campaigns that are combined with natural disasters, it often means that soldiers are underpaid or shortchange their provisions uh, and that are inclined uh, to revolt uh, and contributing to ongoing political instability. But even beneath these uh, sort of you know, surface of events, as it were, uh, we also see deeper ecological factors at work. And I, this gets back to my idea that we really need to understand this in terms of human ecology. To understand how the empire grew over the 15th and 16th centuries, it helps to think about the ways in which different broader uh, ecological patterns uh, sort of reinforced each other in a positive feedback loop of growth. The way that the conversion of you know, land from pastoralism to agriculture helped support rural security, expansion of settlement, and population growth. And so when we turn to the real disaster that struck in the 1590s and try to understand why it became so severe, it helps to think about it again in terms of perhaps a slightly more complicated series of interacting human and natural factors and broader uh, feedback loops in this uh, sort of imperial ecology, if you will. In particular, I'd point to the way in which um, the, these little ice age events uh, helped spark uh, you know, uh, the loss of animals and crops and the way that encouraged peasants then to uh, abandon land 
and that in turn encouraged further agricultural failure, uh, further rural disorder. And then there are a variety of ways that that could lead to a really pronounced mortality uh, over the following generation, uh, which shows up in tax records as, in some cases, a loss of um, whole areas of villages uh, and, in some cases, provinces of Anatolia that lost you know, half or more of their um, people. But even past the shorter-term mortality crisis, there are also larger ecological changes that persist in some cases into the 18th century, ways in which demographics and land use uh, shifted uh, in more profound ways. So I talk about it in more uh, depth in my book. Uh, in particular, uh, we see uh, three things. One is a flight to cities uh, in search of food or in search of security. Uh, and what this does is it brings disease with it, um, including epidemic diseases like plague, like typhus or smallpox. Um, and the urban areas as a whole uh, over the 17th and 18th century, and this is really not unlike uh, most pre-industrial cities, but even uh, more extreme, um, have higher death rates than birth rates. So the movement into cities, like Istanbul, which probably gets up to 600,000 people or more, becomes sort of a long-term drain on the demographic recovery of the empire in the wake of that initial uh, 17th century crisis. A second major trend that we see uh, are, is the inroads of semi-nomadic uh, pastoral tribes, uh, in many cases from uh, eastern Anatolia, from uh, Syria, into what had been agricultural land. So in many cases, as land is abandoned, or as security breaks down, uh, whole villages really have to take to flight and uh, pastoralists move in, which makes it very difficult for agriculture to move back into that same land uh, again. It sort of solidifies, it cements uh, the loss of agriculture and population in many parts of the empire. And thirdly, uh, we see a more complex uh, set of changes in the uh, land use and agriculture uh, in parts of the empire. Uh, and this has been discussed by another historian, Farouk Tabak, who unfortunately uh, passed away shortly after he uh, did his research on this subject. Um, but it's very possible that along with the abandonment of agricultural land, along with climate changes, we also see is the reversion of some arable land into malarial swamps, uh, which again solidifies uh, the abandonment of that land. Uh, and we see, both for reasons of security and also for changing agriculture, uh, peasants moving from the plains where they grew wheat uh, up into the hills, where they oftentimes take to new crops, some of them coming from the new world, like corn and potatoes. And Agriculture as well uh, starts to, uh, in many cases, adopt a more commercial orientation, turning to goods like cotton or tobacco, as the empire sort of loses its self-sufficient provisioning system and opens up more to the world economy. Um, so these processes all in turn um, make it very difficult for Ottoman population to recover. And in fact, it's quite likely that population levels of the late 16th century are not fully recovered until sometime into the mid-19th century. So a much slower recovery uh, than many other parts of the world that are affected by uh, Little Ice Age disasters and uh, that are part of this general crisis of the 17th century. Uh, so what does this tell us then for Ottoman history? Uh, at the least, it tells us that we should probably rethink some of the major narrative elements of Ottoman history in light of climatic and ecological factors, and not least to rethink the Ottoman uh, so-called uh, decline or transformation. It also helps us put the Ottomans into global context. We can see the Ottoman experience as a particular example um, of a broader global experience of Little Ice Age climate change and crisis. And it does suggest more broadly, I think, to all Middle East historians that we need to put the environment back into the picture um, to fully understand the course of events. 
But as I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, there's a consideration whether we can take this beyond the Ottoman Empire, uh, whether we can take it to other parts of history or even today. What I'd suggest so far is that historians have not yet really taken up this challenge, uh, even though it really does lie within our discipline. Uh, we should be the ones looking to the past for relevance to the present, uh, just like generals might study military history to prepare for the next campaign, uh, or economists uh, could or, or should at any rate uh, perhaps study past financial disasters uh, to help prepare for the present or future. Um, so I think there's a way in which we gain an insight, we gain a perspective by studying past climate events uh, to prepare for the current age of global warming. Of course, the comparison is not simple. It's not one-to-one, but history doesn't ever repeat itself exactly. Um, and it's the best insight that we can get. What's happened so far, though, is I think historians have not risen to that challenge uh, because we're a little bit too intimidated by the science involved. Um, we're t- too ready to leave it to what we think might be the experts in climatology or archaeology. Uh, and what's happened is that we have sort of popular histories instead, um, and especially sort of compelling uh, and uh, flashy tales of the collapse of ancient, uh, mysterious, distant civilizations, like the example of the uh, terminal uh, classic Maya in the ninth century, which times out very well uh, with a series of major droughts, as shown here. Now, I won't say that these aren't interesting stories, and I won't say that they're not worthwhile endeavors for archaeologists uh, and climatologists, but what I will say is that, for the most part, what we've gotten out of that are sort of cautionary tales. Um, they're tales that tell us, look, climate change is a problem, beware. But can we get beyond that? Can we learn something more, uh, more specific um, about climate? I think it's time to do that, because I think even in the most optimistic scenarios for the next century, uh, what we're seeing um, is that we will face significant warming. It is really, in some cases, too late uh, to stop any significant climate change. And so it raises important questions, like how will we deal with it? And what can we learn uh, from a more recent, more uh, well-documented history in the last few centuries? In particular, it's worth thinking about three factors that have uh, come up more in the social science discussion of climate change. Uh, For instance, the concept of vulnerability. What exactly tips off climate crisis? Uh, The question of resilience. How can uh, social political systems um, help you know, bounce back um, once they've been hit, once they've been impacted by climate change. And the broader question of adaptability. What kinds of social or political arrangements are capable of responding to that change, um, of making the adjustments that they need uh, to get through uh, climate change or climate extremes? And when we get more specific evidence um, from a historical case like the Ottomans, uh, we can start trying to draw out uh, sort of general lessons here uh, from their experience. And I won't go over all of these in detail, but we can see in particular what kinds of vulnerabilities the Ottoman Empire had, what particular factors uh, made it less resilient um, or less uh, able to adapt. And this is especially useful when we try to step back again and put it into comparative perspective. So in some ways we need more uh, detailed studies um, to sort of follow up um, and try to create um, either sort of more broader encompassing comparisons or one-to-one comparisons, which help us highlight uh, especially important factors. And once we do this, once we sort of look over the past um, and gather more examples, we may not have real precise policy lessons, um, but we might have, in more broad sense, our parables, uh, sort of general insights that come from having studied one case after another, uh, patterns that show up from time to time. And again, I won't go throughout, uh, through all of these, uh, but in my experience as someone who has been looking at 
these past examples of climate change impacts uh, and their consequences, um, certain lessons do seem to recur. Uh, and I think these might be of some value uh, for the future. And the more we study, uh, the more precise we can make them uh, and the more confident we can be about these parables. Now, just to wrap up here, I do want to sort of reach out to some of the specialists in the field of Ottoman and Middle East history here. And just to remind you that there is so much more to be done. Um, what I've done is really not the end. It is just the beginning. Uh, because the pace of scientific discovery moves fast, and there are all sorts of other ways um, to look at this bigger uh, picture. Uh, even as we speak, there is ongoing work that is giving us much more complete, much more accurate data than I showed you from tree rings, um, studies that can give us much more insight into changes in uh, precipitation, changes in temperature, uh, including new data from tree rings, um, and also even some older sources that used to just give low-resolution data, just a general sense of what was going on in the last century, like taking pollen samples or sediment cores from lakes, are now giving us high-resolution data, data at the course of just you know, a year or five-year periods. Um, we can really use to sort of work it back into history. At the same time, there has been new research into Ottoman documents that are starting to uncover uh, information about weather and climate and what kind of impacts it had. Some of it comes from correspondence within the Orthodox Church or records from monasteries. Um, we have more context to build on because Byzantinists are getting interested, Persian historians are getting interested, and we can start to look at the wider and longer picture. Um, and we also have, in some cases, early instrumental records, which have not been worked into uh, sort of the standard instrumental record that is used by climatologists. Early instru- you know, measurements made with early uh, thermometers, for instance, going back into the 19th century. Um, so I think the next step is that we have a variety of new studies we can build on. Um, some of the interesting ones that have come out um, have used, for instance, land and agricultural records to look at changing agriculture, even changing uh, food production. Uh, a particularly a fun study from Bosnia found that as the climate cooled, uh, people were having more trouble growing grapes. So they stopped drinking so much wine, uh, and they started drinking uh, raku, uh, like a hard uh, liquor they could make from a more uh, you know, cold-tolerant uh, sort of berry. Um, we can look at climate as it shows up in financial records. Uh, there are records, uh, so-called uh, uh, terake records, which are records of um, uh, inheritances, basically. Uh, and what those show is that in the wake of uh, climatic stress, uh, wealth inequality rises. It suggests that the wealthy were getting through these um, disasters better than the poor were. Not surprising, but interesting to see it confirmed. We have records from Vakufs, which are sort of a pious foundation, sort of the nonprofit of the Ottoman world. Um, and these also show how um, not only was there more need for, these, uh, for charity in the wake of disasters, but oftentimes these Vakufs were less able to provide uh, because their rents, rural and urban, uh, would suffer uh, from natural disasters as well. Um, there have been new studies, uh, like by my uh, friend Alan Mikhail, uh, looking at how climate also related to the outbreaks of human and animal disease. Uh, and there was so much more to be done uh, in topics, especially in the 18th century, which uh, truthfully is, is the blind spot of my book. So much more to be done um, looking at disasters in the 1720s and 1780s in particular. Finally, um, although I know it may be a little controversial here, I would press the relevance of the present here. Um, and this has shown up in particular uh, in some attention that's been given to the role of climate change now, uh, potentially in the outbreak of the Arab Spring, especially uh, links between the major drought of the summer of 2010, uh, its disastrous effect on grain production, especially in Russia, uh, high bread prices, and the outbreak of political unrest um, you know, during the winter of 2010-2011 in parts of the Arab world. Uh, 
you might think as a historian, this is too simplistic. But if you think that, ask why is it simplistic? And what could you as a historian do about it to give more insight? Uh, and above all, I'd underline that people are interested in this stuff. They do care. Uh, and this is a way to make our work uh, really relevant uh, and to give us a new perspective on our own work as Ottomanists or as historians. So I'll go ahead and wrap up there. Uh, thank you very much.